Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, you can open it right now to 2 Samuel chapter 13. And if you need a Bible, you can get the attention of one of the ushers. And if you're shy and don't want to get the attention of one of the ushers, just open your phone to the Netflix app and pick anything on it, because that will be the equivalent of what we're going to go through tonight in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. It is not, it is not what you would expect from a Bible teaching, what we're going to go through uh, tonight. We have a a debate every year at my house, uh, what is the best Christmas movie? And uh, place number one always goes to Home Alone. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can come close uh, to it. It it is. But I have one that is climbing the list year by year that I like more and more. And it is uh, A Christmas Carol, the one with Jim Carrey. It's the kind of like the computer animated version where Jim Carrey plays Scrooge. He does the voice of Scrooge. And, uh, and, I, and the number one reason I, I love that is just because of his voice. He has the best voice in the whole thing. But there's this one scene uh, in, in it where he, he's kind of meeting the ghost of Christmas future, Christmas to come, the, the third one. And, uh, and, and the, the ghost kind of like, you know, is scaring the, the, the daylights out of him and, and, and is kind of telling him that he has to go. And he knows he's not going to like it. You know, and so he, he says, I wrote it down, I didn't want to forget. He says, he says, if you will force me, spirit, so be it, but I cannot make myself go. And basically saying, like, if you push me in, I guess I have to go, but I can't do it. I just can't. And I kind of feel like that going into chapter 13, you know, and here's why. Because uh, a few weeks ago, when we first kind of turned the corner with David and he began his downfall because of Bathsheba, I shared with you a picture of the whirlpool on the Niagara River. And I told you the story of when I was there as a small boy and one of our family relatives um, pointed to the whirlpool and she put her hand around my shoulder and she said, if you ever got stuck in that, you ain't coming out. And, I, and that, that just stuck with me. And it's, it's just been this picture in my mind ever since, you know, and it just scared me to think like what it, what it would be like if you get caught in that whirlpool, you know? And, and that was enough for me just to be like, you know, 500 yards away and up in the air and looking down at it. And, and that whirlpool is the one, it was the whirlpool of consequences that David kind of jumped into. And for me, it would be enough just to say that. But God says, no, you're going in it. I'm taking you right in chapter 13. You're going in it and you're going to feel it. You're going to smell it. You're going to hear the sounds. You're going to see the free birds flying around up top. You're going to feel the the whirlpool of it, not because you committed the sin and not because you're going to drown, but God says, it's not enough for you to just know it exists, but I want you to really taste what happens if you end up in that whirlpool? And so God put chapter 13 uh, of Second Samuel in the Bible. So I've given you plenty of time to get up and run away if you didn't want to uh, hear what's in it. If you do, it's just because you got excited about how crazy it's going to be. And it is going to be crazy. So let's just pray and then we're going to get into it. I'm not going to read a passage first tonight. We're just going to pray and then we're going to get into uh, the content of the chapter. And so uh, one more time, let's go before him. Lord, we, we set it up that way and, and with a bit of um, 
nervous and, and joyful excitement because, Lord, we, we know that the passage is dark. But, Lord, you never waste a word. You never um, waste anything. And so, Lord, you placed this in. You breathed it into the Scripture, and now you're going to breathe it into our lives. And I pray that the things here would be a teacher for us, and, Lord, that it would be a warning to us, that the smell of these things would be upon us all the days of our life, that we would truly fear you and that we would trust you, and that we would obey you, Lord, knowing uh, that, that it is so quick and so easy for us to fall into something um, so dark. So would you help us tonight, Lord? Would you illuminate the text? We need it tonight, and we'll ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, the context is the aftermath of David's great sin with Bathsheba. He is now in the whirlpool of the consequences. And uh, like with any whirlpool, when you're way out on the outer ring, you barely know that you're in it. And so David has gone a short span. He's been restored to God. Uh, He's back in, in God's favor and in God's grace and in his fellowship. He's been forgiven of his sin. He's been pardoned, which is an amazingly great grace that's been imparted to him from God, um, but he has not been released from the law of sowing and reaping. The Bible says that God is not mocked, and whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. And God uh, spoke to David, and God said, because you have done this thing, and he was specifically speaking about the murder of Uriah, the fact that he had killed Bathsheba's husband, he said, the sword will never depart from your house. And so uh, as we get into chapter 13 now, um, we're going to see the beginnings of that, and it's happening right in front of David, and he doesn't even know that it's happening yet, but he will know very, very shortly. So uh, chapter 13, verse uh, 1, I think my page stuck together. It says this, it says that it came to pass after this, that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Okay, so we meet some of David's offspring here in this chapter. Their names aren't particularly new, but we haven't been introduced formally to them. Um, Absalom and Tamar are the offspring of David's marriage with uh, a woman whose name was Maaka. She was, uh, it was a political marriage. She was the daughter of the king of Gesher, which was one of the old nations uh, that was to be driven out, that was allowed to exist. They, uh, they, their place was more towards the border of Egypt. And while David was fleeing from Saul, he had been in that region and he had made some kind of alliance uh, with the Geshurites. And part of that is that he married the daughter of the king, uh, this woman whose name was Maaka. And uh, the firstborn son, he wasn't David's firstborn complete, but the firstborn that came from Maaka was Absalom, and then later on, uh, a sister named Tamar. And so these two are a byproduct of that relationship. David also took a wife in that time, a woman whose name was Ahinoam. Uh, He also had a wife named Abigail, and he had several other wives (laughs) that were um, a part of his harem. But, but he had another wife whose name was Ahinoam, and Ahinoam bore David his legitimate firstborn. The firstborn son of David was this Amnon that we read about here in verse 1. And we are told here that Amnon uh, grew to have a crush on his half-sister, the sister of Absalom, um, her name being Tamar. Now, it says that he loved her, 
But the idea is that he had uh, affection for her, or he had a crush on her. Um, We're going to find out what it really is, is that he had a lust for her or an appetite for her. It it is in no sense biblical love, and you'll understand that very clearly as the text unfolds. You know, that he just has this desire for this woman who is his half-sister, okay? Now, I want to say at this point that as of yet... In Amnon, there is no foul, okay? He cannot be charged with any particular sin at the end of verse 1, okay? What he is experiencing, what he is going through, is what we would call a temptation. And a temptation is defined as a desire for something that is forbidden or something that is wrong. And that's what makes it a temptation. If there's no desire, then it isn't a temptation. It's just a thing. But if there's a desire for something that's forbidden, it means you are being tempted by it. And temptation is not sin. We know that because Jesus was tempted, and we know that Jesus was without sin. But I want you to just think about it for a minute to realize that Jesus, the Son of God, in his humanity, had a desire for things that were forbidden. And that that can short-circuit the mind a little bit, but he had to. In order for him to pay the price of sin, he had to feel the weight of temptation and yet overcome it the proper way in obedience. And Jesus did that. So temptation in and of itself doesn't cross the line into sin, but how temptation is handled will determine whether it becomes sin or not, okay? Temptation is conceived when desire is aroused. But sin is conceived when desire is sustained. In other words, if I don't handle the desire for what is forbidden in the proper way, then it gives birth to sin. We read that in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And then when sin is conceived, sin will bring forth death. Okay, so when we act on desire as opportunity presents itself, that's when it becomes sin. So Amnon is faced with a legitimate temptation at the end of verse 1, but he does not handle it the right way. And it quickly turns over into the arena or the place of sin. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says that Amnon was so vexed or tormented or frustrated or conflicted, that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, his half-sister, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard, or thought about it hard, is the proper rendering there, for him to do anything to her. The words to her are actually not in the Hebrew language, so it really literally would mean is that he thought about it hard, how he could do anything about his desire. Okay, so what has happened is that his desire has now turned into an obsession, wherein it says that he thought hard about how to do something about it. He's vexed, it says, or conflicted in the text, which means that he knows that he's got a problem to solve if he's to move forward with this desire. He's got an issue here. He's tormented. He knows she's my sister, So I can't do this thing, but she's available. She's a virgin. So maybe there's a chance 
I, I want to do this thing, but I know that I'm not supposed to do this thing. There might be a way I could make it happen, but there's going to be a price to pay and consequences that come with it and shame to bear. And he begins to try to figure out how he can both get what he wants and also not have to pay the price. I, I know he's not saved, but I want one. I really want to get married, and, and I know it's not right. You understand, I, I might not be the only one in here that's ever thought about something hard or obsessed about something that I'm conflicted about and had to wrestle through a temptation or a desire that has become an obsession. That's where Amnon is at here. He's trying to figure out a way. He's looking for a way to both get what he wants without the trouble, without the obstacles that will come with it, and without the shame. It says there, there's a great word, the word vexed. It doesn't show up very often in the Bible, but whenever it does, it kind of always means that same thing. The, the, the chief time or understanding of the word, it pertains to Lot. Remember Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham? He went to Sodom. If you've never heard of Lot, I know you've probably heard of Sodom. And, and Lot was a righteous nephew of Abraham, and he relocated his family to Sodom because the economy was good and he could make a lot of money there. But the New Testament book of Peter tells us that though he was thriving financially in Sodom, he was vexed in his spirit day to day because of the lifestyle of the people and the citizens that were there living in Sodom. In other words, Lot was living in an inner conflict that he really liked the money in the situation that he was in, but he was very aware of the fact that he probably shouldn't be living there that that wasn't the right way to do it. I know that the lifestyle is wrong, but I really like the money. We understand things like that, right? A lot of people right now are facing the issue, I know that I really should be working, but I like the fact that I'm making more money not working than I would be if I was working. And so they're vexed because though the money is there and it makes them, you know, feel like, okay, I'm safe and secure, there's something on the inside of a, of a human that says you're supposed to be productive and what you produce with your life is more important than just the paycheck that you receive for what you produce. And there's a vexation that comes with it. I know I shouldn't be talking to this person that I work with or that is from my past or that I've reconnected with somehow. I know I shouldn't be talking to them, but it feels really good and it's very exciting and it's stirring up something in me that died, that was supposed to die maybe when I got married. And, and, and I know I shouldn't be, but I want to. And there's a vexing. I want to behave like a teenager, but I'm a middle-aged human with a spouse and children. And I probably shouldn't be behaving like a teenager. And there's a vexation that happens on the inside. And that's what's going on with Amnon. He's tempted with something that he's not supposed to have, but he wants it really bad. And so he's looking for a way. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for a place wherein he can have what he wants and yet not have the consequences of having it. When you're vexed, you become obsessed because your mind keeps working 
over and over and over and over, and eventually it taxes your resources and you become sick. And that's what happened to Amnon. It says that he became sick. The question is, how do you avoid this cycle or how do you beat this cycle? How do you get out of it when you find yourself in kind of that whirlpool of like fighting against temptation and now it's become obsession and it's just playing over and over and over again in it? Interesting that the battle happens in the mind, doesn't it? Did you see what it says there in the verse? It says that he thought on it hard. He thought it hard. He thought on it hard. It happens here. It happens in the mind, okay? Now, Jesus gave us the model for how we conquer and defeat this kind of a thing. He did that through his own temptation. You can read it in Matthew chapter 4. You can read it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus himself was faced with real temptations, real desires to do things that for him at that time were absolutely forbidden. Now, how did Jesus battle and ultimately overcome those temptations? The answer is he did it with the word. Three times he was confronted and three times he defended it or fought against it with the word. He said, it is written. The temptation came. If you're the son of man, turn these rocks into bread. He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so likewise, three times the temptation came and it was fought off with the word. But I want you to understand that it wasn't in the quoting of the scripture. That wasn't where the power was. Because if it was, then we would all just memorize the whole Bible and every time we, you know, something happens, we just say a verse and it would all just go away. But that's not where it is. The power isn't in quoting the verse. The power is in believing what it says. Okay, so if God says something about a particular behavior or action or choice that I'm to make, and I place my faith in what God said over what I want or what I feel about it, and then I walk in the direction of what God said rather than what I want, that's where the power of the temptation is then broken. Now, twice in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, it's a whole segment of the Torah, the law, that deals with human relationships. And twice God says that he doesn't want people marrying their half-sisters. He's very specific about it. So God said in the word that this is forbidden. And if Amnon had any interest in not being sick over the obsession that he was facing, it would be as simple as saying, well, God said this is forbidden. And so I'm going to place my faith in the fact that if God says this is the right way to go, then that's what's best for my life. And that's the direction I'm going to go. And immediately the temptation loses its power. This is how you resist the devil. When Jesus put his faith in the word and said, I'm going to walk the father's way and not my own way or your way. It says that the devil fled from him for a season. In the New Testament book of James, chapter four, verse seven, James says, resist the devil. First, he says, submit to God. That's important, right? Because you're submitting to what God said. So submit to God. Then it says, resist the devil and he will what? That's right. He will flee from you. Okay, that's where the power over this is. You can break the power of temptation and sin by saying no. Can you all just say no for me? No. Say it again. 
there's not one of you in here that lacks the hardware to defeat temptation. You have everything that you need right now. You place faith in the word and you already have the weapon. Don't say you can't. You can. You can all say no. You just proved it to me. Okay. Now, this is how you beat pizza and it's how you beat porn. And it's how you beat everything in between that would come as a desire at that moment for you that is forbidden. It's a battle that's in the mind. I'm going to put my faith in what God says and make my determination that that's the way that I'm going to go. You may feel the power of that pull and that temptation temporarily, but as you say no, the power of that temptation breaks to the point where it becomes very easy for you to control it. Okay, now, if you don't do that, and if you continue to obsess and desire and try to work it out and think hard on it, I guarantee you one thing is that is eventually you will find a reason to sin. Eventually, you will find the way that you are looking for, if you keep looking for it. So if you're in that pattern tonight where you're looking, you, want, you, you know you want something, you know it's bad, you know it's going to be bad, and you know just keep looking, you'll find it. Someone's going to tell you that it's okay, or, or you'll find the right thought pattern, you'll find a way to justify it, because if I know anything about humanity, is that we can justify anything. Watch what happens in verse 3. It says, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, and he's more than a friend because he was the son of Shimea, David's brother. He's a cousin. It's always the cousins, isn't it? The brother and the sister will never tell you because they actually care about you, but the cousin is kind of removed. Sometimes there's a little familial competition between aunts and uncles and things like that. It's always the cousins that are telling people to sin. It says that Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab, it says, was a very subtle man or very cunning man. He was good. He was the kind of guy that you went to when you wanted to figure out how you should do something that you weren't allowed to do. And he said unto him, why are you being the king's son? You're the king's son. You're the king's kid. You're a child of God. Didn't Jesus say that he would withhold nothing from those that love him. You're the king's son. You're entitled. No one can withhold anything from you. You're the king's son. Why are you being the king's son lean from day to day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said, he broke his silence unto him. I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He said, here's the issue. Here's the problem. I want this woman that I probably can't legitimately have. And so Jonah said, oh, come on in. Step into my office. Let's talk. He said, here's what you do. Lay down on your bed and make yourself sick. And when your father comes to see you, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat or food and dress the meat in my sight or prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Eat it right out of her hand. Send her as a nurse. Let's get into the situation. Just bring Tamar in and, and see what happens. Something will happen there. And you could just say that David sent her in and, 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 and they were overcome by their love for each other. And, and this is going to work out. This is going to, you could do this whole thing. You could, you deserve to be happy the whole thing. Yeah, that, that's what it is, you know. So there's the plan. Now here's the action. Verse six. So Amnon laid down and he made himself sick. 
And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cookies in my sight. That's what cakes, when you read that, that's just old King James. Make her a couple of cookies in my sight that I may eat at her hand. So David, because he was wise, said, what? Cookies? Your hot sister? Where's your mom? Like, what are you talking about? No, no, no. David is a little bit dull right about now. He's dealing with his own mess that he made. He's easily deceived. He takes it at face value. David sent home to Tamar saying, go now to your brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. David thinks problem solved. You know, the guy's sick. Who, who knows? Millennials. <laughs> why, why do they do whatever? So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour, and she kneaded it, and she made cakes in his sight, and did bake the cookies. And she took a pan, and she poured them out before him, and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have out all the men from me. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, bring the meat into the chamber, into the room that I may eat of your hand. I want to eat. I'll eat if I can eat it right out of your hand. Just put everyone out and you just come in. Come sit on the edge of my bed. Come right over here. Harvey Weinstein style. Just come sit right over here. And Tamar took the cakes, which she had made, and she brought them into the room to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, come lie with me, my sister. So he knocks the pan of whatever, the cakes out of her hand. He grabs her by the arm and he doesn't even try to sweet talk her. He just says, hey, here we are. This is the moment. We're both young. Let's just, just come in. Just do this whole thing right now. This is insane. Listen, the heart will always make a convert of the mind. That's why the Bible says to guard your heart with all diligence. And this guy has been obsessing over this thing for so long that he has lost all sense of reason. And he is in a place now where he's about to do something extremely damnable and extremely destructive. Now listen to what Tamar says, okay? She does exactly what she should do in this thing, although it's not going to work. And that is that she's going to try to reason with him and shake him out of this, this situation. What she's about to do is she's about to give him nine good reasons why he should not do what he's about to do. Okay, let me give them to you. They're all here in verse 12. It says that she answered him. So she gives an answer. He asks, she gives an answer. And here is reason number one. Ready? No. Okay, she can do it too. She says, no, that's the good reason right there. Okay, when you make a proposition on someone and they say no, what does no mean? No means no. It means I'm not interested in this. Okay, that's reason number one. And so for the rational thinking person, this is the end of the situation right now. I struck out. It didn't work. She denied my advances. This is over. But he's not thinking rationally. He's got this brain worm thing happening here. He's literally sick because of this vexing desire that has now short-circuited his entire sense of reason. So no means nothing to him. 
And so reason number two she gives, my brother. No, my brother. Remember, we're family, incest. This is disgusting. You're gross. You're a creep. Like, like no, my brother. Reason number three, do not force me. That's polite King James. The word force means rape. Don't rape me. She says outright. She labels the crime that he is beginning, that she senses that she is in danger of being a victim of. She says, do not rape me. Do you realize this is a capital offense? If you do this, it will be your life. Reason number four, she says, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. You are a Christian. It would be the equivalent of her saying, like, what do you go? You go to church. You're there in the temple. You're a part of the offerings. You're a son of the king, King David, no less. Like, what are you doing? Like, how have you gotten to this point where you would think that this would be okay? This shouldn't be done in Israel. This is so contrary to everything that you know. And then she gives the next reason. She says, do not this folly. In other words, this is a foolish thing. This is not wise. This isn't going to end well. It cannot work. It's foolish. Next reason, verse 13. Good reason. She says, and I remember that, that you are not sinning unto yourself in this. This involves me. This involves my life. This involves my future and my hope and my desires. I am not an item. I am not a thing. (laughs) All right. And I, she says, whither or where shall I cause my shame to go? Do you realize what this would do for my whole entire future? Like I'll never be able to let go of this. For the rest of my life, I have to carry with me what happened in this room, in this moment, when I came here innocently because my dad asked me to come and help you because you're sick and now you're about to do this. And for the rest of my life, I have to carry the burden of what this is. He doesn't care. He doesn't listen. And then she says, and as for you, not just me, but what about you? You will be as one of the fools in Israel. You're not going to get away with it. You're not going to be able to sweep this under the rug and pretend that it went away. There isn't going to be like this silence thing where everybody just covers up for you. This thing is going to be known, okay? My brother is Absalom. We have a little bit of clout around here. We don't really like you as it is, you know? You're going to pay a price for this. And so then she says, now, therefore, I pray thee, I beg thee, speak unto the king for he will not withhold me from you. Now, yes, he will. (laughs) But at this point, she is just grasping for straws. She is saying, listen, just talk to David. Maybe we can work something out. You know, like if you, we could arrange a marriage, you know, we'll do something. Nobody really, I don't know, you know, just talk to the king. How be it, verse 14, he would not listen to her voice but being stronger than she forced her, he raped her, and he laid with her. He went through the whole thing. Listen, in, in, in this verse, what, what you have, and, and I hope you never forget it, and maybe you'll circle those verses where, where Tamar just pleads with him, line by line, reasons why he should not. Because what this teaches you and I, that we must learn, and it's probably one of the chief reasons why God put this in the Bible, is to demonstrate the reason-disabling power of sin. The first thing that sin does 
When it is conceived in a heart is it eliminates our ability to think rationally about the consequences. That's what sin does with inside of us. Wherein it becomes impossible for us to evaluate the cost and the reward. If you talk to people that, that, that fall in, in some horrible sin, you know, they cheat on their wife or they steal a million dollars from the company that they, they're a part of or, you know, they just do, do something to like, just horrible thing. And, and if you were to ask them just prior to them committing that deed, that sin, to just make two lists, make a list of the reasons why you should do this and then make a list of the reasons why you shouldn't. Make a list of what you will get out of it and make a list of what it will cost you and what you will lose in this. And and if a person were to actually do that, like really honestly go through and make an honest, thorough list like that, two lists like that, they would never commit the sin because they would see it right in front of them. Reasons why I should. I want to. It feels good because I get money. It'll be a very short list. On the other page, I'm going to lose my reputation. I'm going to lose my family. Everything that I've ever worked for and built for is probably going to be flushed down the toilet. People are never going to look at me the same in public again. You know, I will be nothing, a shell of what I was. I will lose my authority as a man, as a dad, as a husband, as a workman. I will tarnish everything and, and destroy everything I've ever built. I mean, the list will just go on and on and on. My health will suffer. My mental health will suffer. You know, everything about me will suffer. But yet, people continue anyways. Why? Because sin is deceitful and it ruins our ability to think rationally. If you wait until the moment you are tempted to evaluate and decide what you're going to do in a situation, you will probably fail every single time. We are called as God's people to know what God says about things to place our faith in walking the path that God says and to rehearse the situations before they come. Joseph is a chief example of this. He was 17 years old. He had a call of God upon his life. He was put to the same exact temptation in a very different way. And when Potiphar's wife got her chance and she got Joseph alone and in a situation where he was very vulnerable, And she said, lie with me. And you read what Joseph said. His response was, no. He says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? And besides, your husband, my master, has put me in charge of everything he owns. And the only thing he's withheld from me is you because you're his wife. Now that's pregnant with reasons why not. And you know, when you read that text, that Joseph was prepared for that encounter, that he had already determined before the temptation came how he would handle it when it came, and thus he was successful in handling the temptation. And for you and I, if we wait until we get into the situation, sin is just too powerful. It's too powerful for any human being. And so Amnon gives into this thing. He's got no reason. And watch what happens. It says he forced her. And then in verse 15, it says, then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Wow, that's a flip. Doesn't it just say that he loved her? That he was love sick over her? He loved her so much? 
And now all of a sudden he hates her exceedingly. Watch this. So that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. He hates her more than he liked her one minute after he commits the deed. And Amnon said unto her, get up and get out. Arise and be gone. And she said unto him, there's no cause for that. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not hearken to her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. Pull her out, shut the door and lock it. Don't let her back in. This is crazy. I mean, right off the bat, you realize that obviously the expectation that Amnon had of what this would do for him did not measure up with the actual experience. He thought that this would satisfy him, that he really, but then he got the thing that he really wanted and he realized that that's not what he really wanted at all. And he hated her more than he had even loved her. The shame of having committed the sin takes immediate effect in his life and he doesn't even want to be in the presence of the object of the shame that he brought upon himself. And so he adds abuse to abuse by putting this woman out. Women, and men, I guess, but I'll speak to the women for a minute. The one way, the one way that you can prove the difference between love and lust is in the man's willingness to wait. It is the one and only way that you can. When you read about Jacob, in, in, in way back in Genesis, you know, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, it says that Jacob laid eyes on Rachel for the very first time. And it says that Jacob loved Rachel. And Jacob immediately went to Rachel's father and he said, I will do anything if you would give me her hand in marriage. And Laban says, really, anything? He says, I'll tell you what, you work for me for seven years and I will give you the hand of Rachel. I think that was wise on the part of Laban. Not that a long engagement is essential, but he was saying, oh, you really love her, do you? Well, if you really love her, then you're, you'll be willing to wait. You serve me for seven years and let's see how long your love can last. And it says in the text, it says that those seven years were like a couple of days to Jacob because of the love that he had for Rachel. He was willing to wait and work for seven years without consummating the relationship sexually with Rachel because he truly loved her. And if love is love, it will be willing to wait because it won't just be about the physical activity. Why, why does that matter? Why does waiting matter? Why does sex make such a big difference when it comes to like proving the, the, uh, the sincerity of someone's love or the purity of someone's love? Here's why. Because sex is the consummation of the covenant of singleness that will exist between two people. And we were created for monogamous, lifelong relationships. That's what God made us for. And the sex act is the seal of that covenant. And when it is waited for, there's a trust bond that forms between the two people that is extremely hard to break. And when there is sex before marriage, when that is the epicenter of the relationship and marriage is treated like it's just a piece of paper, there are immediate and almost, there are always trust issues within that relationship. And here's why. Because the woman knows, and I guess the man too, but the woman is the vulnerable one oftentimes, and I got to be careful, I don't want to be canceled, you know, <laughs> 
Because what happens is she knows inside that if the commitment to God was not essential and the steadfastness to obey God was not essential before the marriage, then how am I to know that he's going to be trustworthy in the marriage and that the marriage will mean something to him after we are married? And she innately, intuitively knows that. And so there's trust issues within that relationship. And oftentimes it will happen in that situation that those trust issues spill over into other parts of the relationship and a woman will not even trust the man to lead the family. And thus you have the advent of the pantsuit. You, you know, the whole idea where the woman says, I don't trust you to lead the family. I don't trust you to be the one that's going to solely provide. I'm going to take this into my own hands. And now the roles get confused. The relationship is confused and the marriage begins to grow on a faulty foundation. God says, if you want to know, woman, if you want to know that he really loves you and that this is a good man, you will know it by his willingness to wait. If you have a man who's willing to wait, then you have a man who truly loves you. And you'll have a solid, trustworthy relationship. I know that in a fallen world, that's not exact science, but it absolutely is God's intent and his order in the ways that he wants to do things. Well, the end doesn't meet the expectation And the price that Amnon's about to pay way exceeds the prize that he thought he would receive. Watch this, verse 17. Here's the fallout. It says, I'm sorry, verse 18. It said that she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes the king daughters that were virgins were appareled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her garment of diverse colors that was on her, And she laid her hand on her head and she went on crying. The very first consequence and fallout of what Amnon just did is that he just ruined a life. He took the vitality. He took the purity. He took the personality. He took the hope of a future relationship. He took the the joy and the spark out of a young woman's eye and life forever. He wounded her in a way from which she will probably never recover. What he did is the equivalent of murder to another person. That's number one, first and foremost. And if you are here tonight or you're hearing this at some point in the future, and if you are the victim of sexual abuse, I'm sorry for you because of what what that has done to you. Because that affects you. There's not one person on the planet that can be the victim of something like this or, or even something like it or even partially measuring up to what this is and not be affected. And it is damaging and it is damnable and it is awful. And I know that every day of your life, you probably struggle with the question of why would God allow this to happen? Or how could God allow this to happen? And I do not have an answer for that question. But here's what I do know. I know that it takes a lot of responsibility to be God. And I know that for him to declare himself to be the I am and to put a free will in a fallen creation And for him to stay seated on a throne and say, I know how to work all of this out. I know that he's the God who resurrects. He's the God who restores. He's the God who heals. He's the God that beautifies even the ugliest of things. And he's the God who judges, avenges, and knows how to set things right. And his ask of you, if you've ever been in that situation, is to place the full weight of your trust and patience in him. And let him do a work of resurrection in you and let him work it out for the perpetrator and for the people that were involved. That doesn't mean that you stay silent. It doesn't mean that you take it. 
It just means that you put your trust in him and you walk according to his leading. As hurtful as you might feel towards God because he either allowed it to happen or didn't intervene in some way, he says, listen, I know, trust me, in time it will be made right. Well, watch the second thing that happens, verse 20. It says, the Absalom, her brother, said unto her, he sees and he knows, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? David wasn't sharp, Absalom was. It says, but hold now your peace, my sister, for he is your brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. This is a deep verse and you can chew on it if you want. But essentially what Absalom is saying here is like, listen, there's a lot more involved here than uh, what meets the eye initially. So don't make a big deal of it for now. Let the thing play out a little bit, you know, and and a part of it is almost, it it does touch on a lot of the me too uh, stuff. I almost titled the message today, me too, how about you? Um, but I didn't, you know, I called it, uh, it living in the whirlpool, you know, instead, but, but, but it does touch on this a little bit because you think like, wait a minute, is Absalom here saying that for the sake of stability, you know, that we need to kind of just cover this up? Yeah, that's kind of what Absalom is saying here. And, and, and we can debate about whether or not that was right, but there's a lot of things at stake here, not just for Tamar and David and his family, but for the kingdom, the nation, and the kingdom of God and God's reputation. And and there are things in this that are above the ability of human beings to navigate properly. And there is a time that it has to be left in the hand of God to orchestrate and conduct and mete out judgment and work things out where necessary. So Absalom is, in a sense, exercising wisdom here by saying like, hey, listen, lay low, recover and heal, and let's let this play out a little bit. Well, he's not a godly man, though he might possess a, a, a hair of wisdom in the thing, but it says that when King David heard of these things, that he was very wroth. Now, don't you wish it would go on that David was so wroth that he went to Amnon's house and he hauled him away and he locked him up in prison and Amnon never saw the... It doesn't say any of that. It just says that David was angry, period. And the reason for that is because David has a skeleton in his closet that is holding him down and has robbed him of his authority to do anything meaningful about this. And thus David feels the wrath and the rage, but he has no power to do anything about it. So Absalom spoke unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shears. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. Hey, I want to have a festival, a harvest festival. I'm inviting you and all, all, of, all of your sons, everyone, the servants of the kingdom. I want them to come and celebrate this harvest. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all go now lest we be chargeable unto you. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but he blessed him. He said, you go, you do it, but I'm going to hang back. So Absalom said, if not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when he's had a few, 
And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not, have not I commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man got him up on his mule and fled. And so at the moment Absalom gives the command, his servants attack Amnon singularly, and they kill him. And in the stir of that moment, everyone panics and flees. They all go. And it came to pass that while they were in the way, while they were running, that tidings came to David saying, Absalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. That's that telephone game, right? I whisper a message in your ear, you pass it on, you pass it on, and it changes drastically. One man is dead. David gets word that all of his sons have now been killed by Absalom. But thank God there is a well-meaning do-gooder there to set David at ease. Verse 32. Or verse 31 first. It says, Then the king arose and tear his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. Here he is. And Jonadab, remember him? The cousin, the well-intended friend, the Eddie Haskell that always comes out smelling like a rose. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Okay, stop, stop, stop. One second. Okay, listen. He knew, he knew that Absalom had intended to kill Amnon. Where is his friendship now? Why didn't he warn Amnon prior to the party that he was in danger of being assassinated? He was wise enough to understand the plot and know that it was in Absalom's heart. Why am I making it a point? Because the very person that's going to tell you that it's okay for you to go and destroy your family because you want to have a fling and that you deserve to be happy because you're too young to be in a loveless marriage, that same person will care less when you die because of what you did later on. Real friends will not tell you to do destructive things. For by the appointment of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the, the king, take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon only is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hill beside him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, look, the king's sons come, as your servant said, so it is, just like I predicted. See, just like I predicted. I, I told you this would be how it is, king. And it came to pass, as soon as he made an end of speaking, that behold, the king's sons came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. Hey, this guy Jonadab, who really kind of facilitated this whole thing, plays a deep part, he seems to get away scot-free, doesn't he? He doesn't. You know why? Because although David doesn't know what he did, God knows what he did. And you don't get away with it. But Absalom fled, and he went to Telmai, the son of Ahimud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. He went to where his father-in-law was, Telmai, and he was there for three years, and the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing that he was dead. What a mess 
in this whole thing. I mean, this is horrible, right? There's a verse in Romans chapter 14. It's Romans 14, verse 17. And it says this. It says that the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink. It's not about the, you know, the physical outward elements of things. But the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That that's the culture, the environment, the essence of what the kingdom of God is made up of. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. There is no righteousness, no peace, and no joy anywhere in this chapter. There is no God anywhere in this chapter. This chapter is sorrow, rape, and murder. That's it, okay? And, and that is, that's the mark of the kingdom of darkness. And that's what you get when you get in the whirlpool. You get in the whirlpool and the, the culture, the essence the things of the kingdom, the righteousness, peace, and joy that God gives in his Holy Ghost, it vanishes, and you live in the sorrow of the consequences of your sin. On, on this past Sunday, I was talking about how the kingdom of God is alive on earth today, that the essence of it, the power of it, the environment of it, the righteousness, peace, and joy of it, all of that exists in the world today. Well, so does the kingdom of hell. Though, as Pastor Bobby has shown us in the book of Revelation, Hell has not been opened physically and no one has ever been there physically. The aroma, the culture, the essence of it is very real and very much alive in this world right now. And it is possible for you and I to get pulled into the whirlpool of it. And God gives us a chapter like this and he lets us, like Ebenezer Scrooge, be dragged by the spirit of future things into it for a moment to understand, to taste of it and realize, listen, sin is real. The power of darkness is real. The consequences of what you reap when you sow what is forbidden are real. And God gives warning that we might deliver ourselves from it. You know, I wonder if David, I wonder if David that night, remember that first night back in chapter 11 when he had the window open on his MacBook or I mean in his palace and he was looking in that out the window, and he saw a woman, and she wasn't wearing anything, and it was just a thumbnail at that point. It was just clickbait. It was just, that's a woman, and he had a decision. He's like, do I want to watch this video, or do I want to move on and watch something else? I wonder if David, if he, if he knew that if he clicked on that, that what he would be watching would be the events that transpire in chapter 13 if he still would have clicked on that window. Because what you think you're going to get when you chase after a desire for something that inside you already know is wrong, what you're going to get on the other side of that momentary experience is the sorrow that keeps on giving and giving and giving. And that's what David is living in. So what's the proper response and what am I supposed to do with this now that I feel like I've been dragged through the mire on Wednesday night church service? The answer is in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want to read you this segment because Peter tells us what to do. What do we do now? That's the question. What do I do? Beginning in verse 6, Peter writes this. Oh, goodness, I'm on the wrong page. I'm in the wrong book. First Peter 5. What, what did I give you? 
It is six. Why can't I find? There it is. I'm sorry. Okay. He says, humble. I was looking in chapter four. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Number one is that's your vexations, your cares, the things that make you anxious, your anxieties, the things that you can't let go of, your obsessions. He says, cast them on God. Humble yourselves and cast those things upon God. That's number one. Then he says this, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Here's why. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Meaning that at every given moment, Satan is desiring to set you up for some temptation and some failure that's going to take you out of the game. And Peter says, if you're not aware of that, if you don't know that there's a temptation being custom crafted with your name on it right now, and that the time is just biding for it to be placed in front of your eyes, then you're crazy. And thus you need to be prepared for the fact that that temptation's coming. And every single person in this room right now that's hearing my voice, you know the thing that you're going to be tempted with. And so we have no excuse to not be prepared for when that temptation comes to already have determined how we're going to handle it. Am I going to put my faith in the word of God or am I going to chase after my fleeting desires? He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brothers that are in the world. Meaning all of us are going to face this trial and this temptation. Watch this, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, After you have suffered a while, that is, suffered through the temptations, he will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. Okay, this is the the, the launch verse of this entire study in 2 Samuel. The whole idea of being established. And what Satan's desire is, is to knock you off of your established place, to take you out of the game. God's desire is that you stay rooted and fixed in his purpose and call and his blessing upon your life. And if we are not aware of the danger that we face every day and the temptations that come, then we are vulnerable and at great risk of being ruined, put right into the whirlpool. May God give us wisdom. This isn't a fun passage and part of the Bible to be teaching, but it's so essential and necessary in the days that we live in. Father, we thank you tonight for for the warning. We thank you that you love us enough to teach us as a father. So help us. I pray for anyone here tonight that's in the the vexation phase of of mulling over desires and and wrestling through temptations. I pray, Lord, that, that you as the God of all grace would give us the supernatural power to, in faith, choose what's right and that we would walk in the established place in the righteousness, peace, and joy that your kingdom is and that we would come out of temptation having endured and receiving the crown of life which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to all them that love is appearing. So help us, Lord. Help us. Help your church. Help the church in the United States of America. Help your people. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, weak and strong. Lord, help us and teach us to walk in faith and not by sight or by feeling. Be with us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship. 
Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.